Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are lucky to be joined by Hala Hueo. Hala is a professor of political science at the Dominican University, and her research focuses on state-building processes and post-conflict societies in the MENA region. Hala, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ezra. I'm glad to be here today. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, would you like to maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your research interests? Well, uh, as you mentioned, that I am interested in the regions of uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And uh, more specifically, I am interested in the um, Arab Spring societies and the political and social and cultural changes that took place in those societies as a result of the Arab Spring phenomena. I um, also have a special focus in my research in the topics of political Islam, women in politics, development, and state-society relations. Great. And I guess... Related to the research interests, you recently published an article in Melg, uh, which is currently available in advanced copy, uh, and it's titled, The Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Libya is a Last Resort for the Continued Existence of the Global Movement. Mm -hmm. And the article provides a lot of interesting background on the Libyan Brotherhood. And because maybe of us maybe are a little bit less familiar with this branch of the movement, I mean, I certainly am, I wonder if maybe we could jump in here and sort of discuss uh, the history of the movement a little bit. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, actually, the history of the movement in Libya is connected directly to the Muslim Brotherhood establishment in Egypt, especially if we consider the geographic proximity between Libya and Egypt, which made Libya the natural extension of the group's ideology. So the group's presence in Libya dates back to uh, late 40s, exactly 1949. And there are three main factors that contributed to the uh, establishment or foundation of the group in Libya. The first one is the three Egyptian members of the Muslim Brotherhood who fled to Libya from Egypt after the assassination of the uh, Egyptian prime minister at that time, uh, Mahmoud Mekraji. So they received uh, asylum in Libya, and they are considered by a lot of historians to be the real founders of the Libyan branch, the Libyan Muslim Brotherhood branch. The other factor is the huge number of Egyptian teachers that came to Libya during the 50s and 60s to teach in the Libyan schools. And a lot of those teachers brought with them the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the final factor is the Libyan students who pursued their higher education in Egypt at that time, where they were exposed to the uh, Muslim Brotherhood ideology as well. Great. And is it possible to identify the major sort of intellectual influences on the Libyan Brotherhood from among the wider uh, Brotherhood movement? Yeah, well, it's like from the beginning, the Libyan branch lacked their local intellectuals um, who would put forward their thoughts with regard to the uh, Muslim Brotherhood ideology, which led the branch to draw directly from the work of uh, Sayyid Qutb, uh, Hassan al-Banna, and, and maintain the movement's orthodox approach, which believes that Islam is a complete system in itself and connects itself directly um, to al-Banna teachings and ideas and principles. 
So basically, since the establishment of the movement in Libya, the sources of its intellectual references were always the leaders and thinkers of the movement in Egypt. Right. So with this very sort of close relationship with the Egyptian Brotherhood, what was the relationship between the Libyan branch and the Gaddafi regime? Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's very interesting because um, Gaddafi took a wider approach when dealing with Islamist groups in Libya or opposition in general. So the movement's activities, just like any other um, ideologies and any other opposing ideas to Gaddafi, were prohibited for so many years under Gaddafi's regime. In the beginning, as um, the movement in Libya adopted a confronting policy with the regime, and the regime didn't tolerate that kind of, of, uh, of policy, and Gaddafi declared war on political Islam in general, and he didn't in, in this war he did not differentiate between violent Islamist groups and um, violent Islamist groups, meaning like an example would be uh, you know the Libyan Islamic fighting group, which is made mainly of the of the former warriors or Libyan uh, fighters that were fighting in Afghanistan, or other Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, which based is it's a position on political grounds. So he basically described Islamism in general as a cancer that is threatening the Libyan society. And therefore, um, he was practically in war with all these Islamist groups. So as a result, a lot of uh, Muslim Brotherhood members uh, were imprisoned or publicly executed, and uh, the rest of them fled the country. But the relationship between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Gaddafi regime warmed towards the end, right? Yes, they did. And and it, it was a result of uh, the changes in the Gaddafi um, regime's policies during the early 2000s. That's when Gaddafi started to uh, improve his relations with the West. So he wanted to introduce his regime in a different picture than the Western countries are used to. So he wanted to show that he can tolerate uh, opposition, for example. He can open up uh, the country for uh, a little bit of uh, freedom of expression. And that, that time was when the relationship changed between the group and Gaddafi's regime. Because the group at that time decided to draw from some of their principles instead of uh, confronting the regime, they decided that they would reject that radical changes uh, um, ideology and uh, call for changes from within, which goes in line with the the group's principles of gradual change and change from within and accepting the system as is and try to make change within the system. And that's why the group um, took advantage of the regime's attempts to uh, repair its relations with the West. And that lasted until the revolution in 2011. And during that time, the Muslim Brotherhood started to have good relationships with Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, who is uh, Gaddafi's son, who was in charge of presenting Libya in this new look sort of speak. So he was in charge of the project Libya al or uh, Tomorrow Libya. 
and uh, Muslim Brotherhood was part of that project, and they were actually big part of the project of, of Libya right. Red. And so, where did that leave them on the, uh, you know, on the eve of the revolution, and why did they decide to join? Well, well, the thing is, when the revolution happened, uh, it was the timing of the revolution itself. Um, was not in favor of of the Muslim Brotherhood in Libya because at that time they were in the height of of their uh, plans of building a public face in the in the Libyan society since they were working from uh, exile and they were working from outside of Libya for so long they didn't get a chance to have a public face. And during or within the project of Libya al-Ghad, they got their chance to build that public base for themselves by uh, being part of a lot of civil society uh, uh, initiatives and uh, creating different organizations in the society to basically just introduce themselves to to the society. And unfortunately for them, the revolution happened in 2011 and it was just right after the group's conciliation with the Gaddafi regime, and the group had already invested in repairing the relationship with the regime at that time, and they were kind of like um, facing a big decision whether or not to join the revolution against Gaddafi or continue with their plans in establishing themselves and getting you know more roots uh, in, in, in the society. So at that time, the decision to join the revolution was not easy for them to make. And uh, they actually eventually decided to join uh, the revolution. And it was kind of like against their principles because the movement in general does not like the sudden revolutionary changes. It has never been one of their principles. That's why it was kind of a quick response which goes in line with the pragmatic nature of the group to join the revolution. It's like, okay, this is, if we want to survive, we have to just jump off the sinking ship and join the revolution. And this is, this is what they did. But in fact, by joining the revolution, the group had huge advantage over other groups and other uh, establishments in the, in the Libyan society. Because the new environment of political freedom in, in, in Libya, where citizens had almost never experienced any type of political experience or, uh, or being engaged in any kind of uh, political institutions in the way that we understand and the way we know, uh, that gave a chance to the Muslim Brotherhood to shine and emerge as an organized group. Uh, it had uh, um, a cohesive structure. It has a clear political ideology. So that was an advantage. They were they had a head start ahead of, of, of other groups that were uh, just emerging at that time, right after the revolution. Right. And then... Um, with the decline of the uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, how did that affect the, the Libyan movement? You mean after the uh, overthrown of the Morsi? Yeah, exactly. Uh, government? Yeah. Well, in my paper, um, I emphasize on the fact that 
the group in Libya is directly connected to the uh, mother branch in Egypt. And I follow this connection historically, and I provide reasons why Libya is directly connected to Egypt. And this connection continues until this day. And one of the effects of this connection is that when the Muslim Brotherhood government in in Egypt was overthrown, that was a big blow to the transnational movement and added more pressure on the Libyan Muslim Brotherhood to succeed. So they were in the front line at the time, and the fall of the movement in Egypt made the Muslim Brotherhood uh, desperate to succeed in Libya. But unfortunately, the movement performed very poorly in the second general elections in Libya because Libya had the first general election, which is the General Congress, and the Muslim Brotherhood used different tactics to gain seats in the in the Congress, but when it came to the second general elections, which is the Libyan House of Representatives, the movement did not do as well. Uh, along with other Islam other Islamist movements, they did not um, gain or they did not win a lot of seats in the in the second elections, uh, and uh, the. In general, the whole Islamist current only secured 30 seats out of 200 seats in the new legislative body, which is the House of Representatives. So at that moment, it was very critical for the Muslim Brotherhood in Libya to have control in different areas. They had needed to have control on the political arena. They needed to have control uh, in the military, and they needed to have financial control. And they took steps to have these areas covered. Uh, for example, uh, politically, even though they did not win, or actually as a result of them not having enough seats in the second uh, legislative body, which is the House of Representatives, they decided that they would reverse to the expired Congress in Tripoli, which is the original uh, uh, National Congress, uh, and this is how the things were supposed to be. Uh, it was supposed to, the, the National Congress was supposed to give power to the new House of Representatives. And the National Congress should be resolved because they should have moved to the next step. But then since the Muslim Brotherhood didn't have enough seats in the House of Representatives, they decided that they're going to go back to the Congress, the National Congress, and extend its life instead of handing power over to the House of Representatives. And this decision created the two-government situation that continues to exist up until now. So additionally, additionally to that, the group resorted to military force and fiscal force to achieve its control on the ground. So now they have the control over the um, Congress in Tripoli, the National Congress. Militarily, they are uh, supporting and funding the, the militias in the West, particularly two main militias. The first one is the Libyan Shield Forces, Duroa, which consisted mainly of the revolutionary forces, which was formed during the revolution against Gaddafi. 
And the other group is the uh, Libyan Dome or Fajr Libya, which is basically revolutionary uh, groups that from Masrata that was formed after the revolution. So by funding and supporting these two, now they secured their military control. Now the third part, which is the financial control, they managed to do this uh, by uh, controlling the Libyan financial resources. Uh, Of of course, someone would say, how did they do that? Basically, uh, I refer in in my uh, paper to different high-ranked Muslim Brotherhood members who are holding very sensitive uh, financial positions in the country especially positions that are close to the uh, Central Bank of Libya, uh, which is the, the main source of monetary in Libya. Also, they tried to control the oil fields uh, in Central Libya, and that was a, a reason for different uh, um, armed conflicts with the, with the guards of the, of, the, of the oil fields in Central Libya. But then after they could not control the fields, they turn to control the uh, central bank. So these are like the three main areas where they feel like they have to control in order for them to have control over the whole, you know, situation in Libya. Right. And so with this position of control, and I mean, moving a bit closer to the central argument to your paper, Mm -hmm. um, you argue that Libya and not Tunisia uh, is now the the Brotherhood's best chance to to score a win out of the Arab uprising and sort of realize its members' dream of of political control. Yes. And so, what are your sort of key reasons for making this argument? Yeah. Well, actually, someone would say why Libya because Libya has a lot of um, challenges in being the next you know stronghold. The movement doesn't have a, a concrete existence in Libya. For so many years, uh, its activities were prohibited in, in Libya. It doesn't have, you know, public support. But I have two main reasons why the group has better chance in Libya than in Tunisia. The first one is the direct connection between the Libyan branch and the main uh, branch in, in Egypt. If we compare the situation in Libya with the situation in Tunisia, like it's important to differentiate between an Islamist group that shares the general understanding of the Muslim Brotherhood ideology while maintaining a considerable degree of independence, which is the case of Tunisia, and a group that is loyal to the transnational leadership of the group and shares the core ideological ideas with the main branch, which is the case of Libya. So this is the first reason I have why it's Libya and not Tunisia. When you look at the Tunisian case, you will find that Al-Nahda, which is a, the, the, the Tunisian Muslim Brotherhood branch, shares a broad ideological platform with the movement, but at the same time, it managed to maintain loose ties with the movement's leadership in Egypt and the mainstream ideology of the movement. You can find this in small indicators, just like 
their name, for example, they don't have the, 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 the term Muslim brother, they don't call themselves Muslim brother, they call themselves Al-Nahda, right? And they had a, a great advantage over the Libyan group by having their own intellectuals. They have their own thinkers. And an example of that would be Rashid Ganoushi. And he is a charismatic leader. And he was in the group in, in Tunisia since the formation of the group in Tunisia in the 70s. And the, therefore, the, gr- the group in Tunisia was born with a distinctive identity that allowed it to be free from the traditional group in, in Egypt. It had its own principles. It, Rashid Ganoushi has a different approach to how they deal with democracy and how they deal with the existed uh, government which is different from what we have in the traditional teachings of Hassan al-Banna and Sayyid Qutb. On the other hand, we have the Libyan Muslim Brotherhood branch, which was always a loyal part of the mother movement. From the beginning, as I said, they, did, they lacked the local intellectuals. They wouldn't have their own local thinkers who would adjust the movement's teachings to be specific to the to the Libyan society uh, it, they were just followers of the of Hassan al-Banna teachings and this is one of the main reasons why i would say it's libya not tunisia because it's easier to uh, move the stronghold from egypt to libya which has always been just an extension of of the movement the other reason I have is that Libya, the, the situation in Libya itself, the political vacuum in Libya, the weak state structure that allows a movement to work with more freedom, uh, which is something you don't see exist in, in Tunisia. And in the Tunisian case, we see how Yanushi had to make a lot of compromises with other political powers in Tunisia in order for him to run the country or in order for him to work within the political system. Whereas in Libya, we didn't, Libya didn't even have a political structure to start uh, with. So these are the two main reasons uh, I provide uh, for my argument that it's Libya, not Tunisia, uh, to be the next stronghold of the movement. No, that's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And you know, though, that there's still quite a few challenges that the Brotherhood in Libya is facing, sort of consolidating control in the country. Could you maybe just kind of walk us through these challenges and and how they're being overcome? Yes. Well, basically, as I said, the 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 Muslim Brotherhood in Libya is trying to secure its control over the country through controlling the country politically, militarily, and financially. However, there are three main uh, challenges the movement is facing in in Libya in order for them to realize their their ambitions. The first challenge is the lack of public support. As I mentioned earlier, the movement worked uh, underground and uh, it worked from exile for so long, which prevented it from building a strong public base uh, in, in Libya. 
uh, and if you compare it to Egypt, for example, the movement has been there for so long. They were able to build a strong public support and roots in, in Egypt with, you know, all the, the work and the charity work and the uh, social work they have been doing. In Libya, they didn't get a chance to do so. So this is one reason. And also, uh, they don't have the experienced leadership in Libya that can take over. You know, the leadership in Libya, the, the group leadership in Libya is not experienced politically and intellectually. So they can't take initiative to be uh, the leaders of the global movement. You know, it's, it's a big responsibility for them and it doesn't seem like they have what it takes to, to be uh, the leaders of the global movement. Also, um, the group is, is, as I said, it doesn't have a public support, but also it doesn't have a public acceptance because the public perception of the ideology is that it's an important and foreign movement because we all know that it was originally established in Egypt. And the, you know, the public perception is that they take their orders from Egypt. So it is not entirely a national, a Libyan national movement. It has its roots somewhere else, which always creates this question of whether or not uh, they have the patriotism that is uh, required for them to be the leaders of the country, especially if you add to that the group's support of the militias and the West also uh, make a lot of people accuse them of prolonging the conflict in Libya. And that's also one of the reasons that people do not really accept the group in, as, as, as a leadership group in Libya. The third reason is, of course, uh, Haftar, uh, General Khalifa Haftar and, and his forces in eastern Libya, which are uh, backed by the House of Representatives. Uh, in the east. And since the beginning of, of the military operation of Khalifa Haftar, which called Al-Karama in 2014, he declared war to, as he says, like to cleanse Libya of Islamists and uh, including the Muslim Brotherhood. And he described the Muslim Brotherhoods as a disease that is seeking to spread throughout the bones of the Arab world. So he is declaring a war directly against uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. And as we know that he, uh, he tried to attack Tripoli, he uh, had Tripoli under siege for, for months, and uh, the war or the conflict was going on between his uh, forces and the militias uh, in Tripoli for so long, and he was trying to uh, take over Tripoli. Of course, this didn't work out, and now we have the talks uh, that are taking place in Tunisia and, and other places uh, where they're trying to bring the parties together or closer. And it still doesn't seem like there is any uh, solutions to the problem in Libya in, in, in the near future, uh, especially with, uh, with Haftar, with his uh, ambitions to control Libya as a whole. And with the Muslim Brotherhood in the West trying to have or maintain their control uh, in the West and expand their control over uh, Libya as a whole as well. So this is the situation. Yeah. 
it seems like, you know, a, a contributing factor to that sort of gridlock is, you know, this increased pressure that's been placed on the Libyan Brotherhood by the by the decline of the Egyptian movement. Yes. Is that a fair way to look at it? Well, yes. Well, in, in my paper, um, I argue that I would say, I don't know if this is, uh, we will see like if this is going to prove true or not, but I believe that the only way that the Libyan uh, conflict would be resolved is if the group could find a stronghold in a different place and more likely it would be Egypt. So as long as the group is, is blocked from operation uh, operating in Egypt, as long as it, it, it doesn't seem like there is no other place in the, in the region, that could be the next stronghold for the group, the group will desperately um, try to maintain their grasp in Libya. And uh, unfortunately, this will prolong the conflict in Libya for, for longer. Great. Well, that's a, a good, if very pessimistic place, <laughs> probably for us to leave it today. <laughs> um, so, Hala, thank you very much for joining us. It's really been interesting. Oh, thank you, Israel. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. No, thanks. Thanks again. And thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast. <laughs>